As I've grown up and grown a little more mature in the marketplace and I have expectations about the kind of income that I would expect from my employment, it became more difficult to define myself with the depth of knowledge and specialization that matched up well with the people who were trying to hire someone who had deep expertise in one very specific domain. It started showing up like a liability rather than an asset. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ventura, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. In childhood, I wanted to be good at many things, but quickly discovered that grammar and math were not strengths. However, abstract thinking was. I could easily grasp how things worked mechanically or systemically. And as a young adult, I still yearned to be known as a Renaissance man, that versatile, well-rounded guy who performed brilliantly in many different fields. Perhaps my ego couldn't handle being pigeonholed, into one specialty or one job. But as I matured, I discovered where my deep expertise in a unique niche has proven very successful. And that specialization is transactional competence. Simon Chesney's journey is a case study in the benefits of evolving from a talented generalist to a unique specialist. He's learned that specialization and differentiation can help him build a valued identity, and that it's possible to incorporate and combine his past experiences and expertise with his newly acquired specialized knowledge. He now works as an enterprise agile coach for Western Digital, a Fortune 200 data storage company in the United States. Take a second and introduce yourself. I'm Simon Chesney. I'm an Enterprise Agile Coach for Western Digital, which is a Fortune 200 data storage company. And I live in the California Bay Area. And your accent is from? I'm from the UK originally. I moved to California with my family 20 years ago. Very good. I love you're going from a talented generalist to an agile specialist. And you've beautifully demonstrated in some of your notes sort of what you went through about all of that. And I want to start off with this notion of you as a a talented generalist, because I know people who think I'm a Renaissance guy, good at lots of things. If you can remember back, what was that thinking? What were you saying to yourself when people said, what do you do? And you kind of referred to yourself as a talented generalist. Do you remember how you thought back then? If I go back a really long way, I studied medicine for a little while and I dropped out of medical school and taught martial arts for a while. And at some point I needed to earn some more reasonable money and taught myself computer programming. 
and discovered fairly quickly that I was just a terrible employee at that time and needed to, <laughs> to start my own business without any awareness of what was involved in that. And I ran a business for the better part of a decade in the the UK and then moved to the States and got a job. I interviewed with various companies and I I got some offers and took a job that seemed like it would be enough to pay for the family and pay for the move. And it kind of carried on that way for the next 10 years or so. I, I would find myself in a position at a company. I'd have managed to get hired on in some particular role some project or area of accountability would come along and I'd offer to help and I'd be given some accountability in that domain. And I think of myself still as as fairly flexible. I'm reasonably intelligent. I work very hard. Sometimes I work too hard and put work ahead of, of other concerns and aims. And so I've moved through a few different roles. When I write my resume, unless I'm very careful, it can run to many pages. Yes. Because... It's a narrative about a journey that, in which I've been a computer programmer, I've been a, an engineering manager, I've been a program manager, I've run a program management office, and various other things. What I discovered <laughs> against this backdrop is that as I've grown up and grown a little more mature in the marketplace, and I have expectations about the kind of income that I would expect from my employment, it became more difficult to define myself with the depth of knowledge and specialization that matched up well with the people who were trying to hire someone who had deep expertise in one very specific domain. Mm. It started showing up like a liability rather than an asset. Yes. That's well said. And did you at some point wonder, well, what should I specialize in? Or how did you begin to move towards a specialization? What was the journey then? When my family and I moved to the States, we we were pretty clear that the path was to work in Silicon Valley, to work for a, a startup that was going to make it big and to make tons of money and retire early and have fun. And In the period since about 2012, I had a couple of roles that were VP-level positions in startups. And it turns out it's just not easy to pick a winner. I kind of refer to those as my um, lottery tickets. Typically, earning somewhat less or maybe even a lot less than than I could earn in a major Fortune 1000 company. But with lots of share options that might have the potential to mature one day. And then it turns out, no, not today. I haven't won the lottery yet. So several years ago, I took a look at the market, actually. And this was before I came to Influence Ecology. I I took a look at the market. I'd gone through a transition myself where I'd worked in a company called NetApp. I'd been there for a decade. I'd led a couple of major releases of the data on tap software, which is a very large, uh, large engineering effort. And then I had moved to a company called Zynga, which was at the time the, the world's largest internet games company and ran a part of their system engineering function. And it was a very, very fast paced environment. And in order to be competent in that, that environment, I needed to become a, an agile scrum master and introduce various ways of working with the teams that, that enable them to be very agile. An agile scrum master? Something called an agile scrum master. Oh, you have to say what that means for our audience. 
Well, agile is jargon within the computer industry and the software industry in particular. Uh, and it refers to an approach to organizing effort uh, and organizing people that is anchored in something called the Agile Manifesto that was written in 2001 in, in Snowbird in, in Utah. And the Agile Manifesto makes some assertions about better ways of developing software and systems. Really, it's a focus on individuals and their interactions, and it puts that above processes and tools, and there's, there's some other things to do with being flexible in the way that you work. It's a way of managing projects and people, and it's very much about empowerment and decision-making and creating an environment in which talented professionals can move quickly and deliver as much value as possible. And it contrasts traditional command and control styles of management. So in my distant history, before I moved to the UK, I tended to work in that way in the little business that I had there. And then I worked for several large companies that were somewhat agile, but not as agile as Zynga was when I moved there in 2010. So I was exposed to a very agile environment. After being in these kind of senior leadership roles in a couple of, of startups and coming to the determination, okay, it's time to get a proper job again and to earn some money, I looked at the market and it seemed to me that adoption of Agile was becoming mainstream, that large companies were beginning to embrace agility. And I decided that I wanted to develop my expertise in that domain. So I started studying and started finding opportunities to work in that area and to acquire certifications and experience. I'm not a specialist, obviously, in Agile. I understand it generally. What's a Scrum Master? You said that Agile Scrum Master, and I don't, I don't, never heard that term before. What's that mean? Well, at the team level, underneath the umbrella of the Agile Manifesto, there are several different approaches that people take to in their implementation of, of agility. The prevalent model at the team level, or the prevalent practice, is something called Agile Scrum. It was invented by Jeff Sutherland and Ken Schwaber, and it's very widely used. And Scrum is a simple model. It's difficult to achieve a high level of functioning with it, but it, it's simple to comprehend. It has three roles, something called the Scrum Master, the Product Owner, and the Team. Gotcha. And the Scrum Master is the coach for the team and really is responsible for guiding the team in their adoption of the scrum, the scrum process. Very good. So I think the people that are familiar with Agile will understand that. I had no clue. So thank you very, very much. So you were talking about your journey a bit and the work that you did with the other companies and the startups. There's got to be a moment, I would imagine, where you through your studies here, began to see, to even a greater degree, your own naivete around being a generalist? That's a great question. Got a position with Western Digital. There's a funny story there, actually. I got myself hired on as a, an enterprise agile coach to run an agile transformation for a business unit. And I was hired by a former colleague who I knew in the industry. And the day after I was hired, there was a reorganization and the business unit was dissolved 
as part of the formation of a, a new business unit, my job got redesignated. Uh, I was quite unhappy about the situation. The good news is, as a generalist, I was able to pick up <laughs> the job that was handed to me and, and perform it reasonably well. And then I spent uh, the better part of a year lobbying to get the agile transformation that I had originally gone there to lead underway. Eventually, I met with success. And at that point, I was smart enough to realize that I would need some help. And I interviewed a number of people. I kind of engaged with people in the Agile Leadership Network and identified Alex Bald as a terrific resource, as a master coach who could come in and, and coach senior management in this transformation. Now, with regard to the question about being a, a generalist versus a specialist, even within the domain of, of Agile transformation, you can be a generalist or you can be a specialist. And as the adoption has grown, and there's very broad adoption in the market now, there are different specializations. And I trained in a couple of the frameworks for using Agile methods at scale. There are several competing frameworks, and the companies that promote those frameworks compete very vigorously in the marketplace. And I had a concern, which was, if I devote myself to study in one of these particular specializations, I run the risk of alienating myself from companies that are not aligned to that particular specialization. And I was very hesitant to do so. And at some point, I realized that there was far more value in picking one of these domains and, and going deep and really becoming known within the ecology associated with that particular framework and acquiring enough knowledge to embody the expertise for that framework within Western Digital. But it took me a while to get there and the study with Influence Ecology opened my eyes to the value of, of doing that. If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. It's always easy for us to, upon reflection, see the way that it was and the way that it is now. Do you remember anything that you were struggling with or any major realizations that began to point you towards, you know what, if I go deep, if I specialize within this one particular ecology, then it'll pay off? What do you remember about that? For me, it showed up as comments. I said earlier that I engaged with leaders within the Agile Leadership Network in Silicon Valley and the Tri-Valley, and I received feedback, I mean, comments along the lines of, you need to be careful about your identity, because if you associate yourself with this 
group or that group. You may alienate yourself from one of the other groups. It's a thought that's available in the larger ecology of agile expertise. And I think that some of it's based in authentic differences in outlook from the co-founders of these different schemes. And some of it's based in raw market competitiveness. Yes. You know, it reflects the interests that people have in asserting that their way is better. The thing is that when I first uh, had the opportunity, I got the green light to lead the agile transformation of the data center systems business unit in Western Digital. My first inclination was to engage with the two leading organizations that had different frameworks. Scrum Inc., led by Jeff Sutherland, and Scaled Agile Inc., led by Dean Leffingwell. And as I attempted to engage these two relatively fierce competitors to in their collaboration in supporting Western Digital, it became apparent to me that it was going to be very difficult to not pick one of these horses, mm-hmm. uh, that they were unlikely to collaborate well and effectively. There were indications that began to show up that it was unlikely that I could enjoin them in, in some fruitful collaboration together, and that rather there would be signs of their competitiveness that would show up as breakdowns in the environment that we were trying to create. So then I needed to, to pick one. Uh, and as it turns out, given the prevalent culture at the time within Western Digital, I determined that I was going to promote the adoption of Scaled Agile Framework as the framework that was most closely aligned to the starting culture, the culture that we had and that we were going to attempt to transform in Western Digital. And that's turned out very well, actually. So far, it's turned out extremely well. And along your way now in continuing to produce that identity, that specialized identity, do you have moments in which you needed to remove diluting elements from your identity? Now, it's difficult for me to to say this is the when. It's been a process, I think, rather than a a particular inflection of a point that I can identify. And that's fair, by the way. For many people, there is a process of becoming, we'll call it that. And in that process, there's wherever one is in the journey. It's a little bit like a funnel in some ways where it's quite broad on one end. It continues to get smaller and smaller as you move towards a specialization. And we have hundreds of examples of people who have, you know, maybe they partway through the funnel or midway through the funnel, or they thought they came out the other end of the funnel and discovered a new funnel or the like in terms of specialization. But I was just wondering if there are any experiences where you looked and you went, I need to somehow remove that part of my identity, I need to perhaps remove this diluting element or perhaps state this in another way on my resume or the way I say it. Nearly three years ago now, I acquired a certification as a Scaled Agile program consultant. So that was aligned to Scaled Agile Inc. And also at more or less the same time, I did some in-depth study with Jeff Sutherland on the Scrum at Scale model that Scrum Inc. has. So I carried forward these two dual identities. I hadn't prepared to commit myself one way or another. Now, much more recently, the opportunity to become part of the first cohort of what are called internal scaled agile program consultant trainers Hmm. 
popped up on my radar. So I'm now part of that first cohort of six people across different industries. I'm the first person in devices manufacturing or high-tech product development to be in the process of becoming an internal Scaled Agile program consultant in the world. And that undoubtedly brands me in my identification with Scaled Agile Inc., As part of completing that certification track, I will be expected to present at major events on behalf of and telling the story of the adoption of the Scaled Agile framework. And that is likely to create some degree of alienation from other parts of the industry that are in fact competing with the Scaled Agile framework. I recently spent a week in Boulder, Colorado, studying with Dean Leffingwell and and the other ISPCT candidates doing an, an immersion week. Prior to that point, I needed to decide, am I in or am I out? Now, at this moment in time, Scaled Agile Framework is the leading framework that's being adopted in the world for enterprises that wish to deploy agility at scale. Who knows what the future holds, but certainly this is a a skill set that's in demand to the extent that I recently had unsolicited requests for my help in providing training in San Francisco, for example, which I have declined because I'm very, very busy with the work that I'm doing at Western Digital. But there's no doubt that there's significant demand for the level of expertise in this domain that I now embody. That's fantastic. Well, it's worth taking a moment to say that with most of the people we work with, when they continue to specialize, the requests continue to grow and come their way more and more often as the ecology in general begins to learn of your specialization through word of mouth, through publication and the like. So for anybody listening who's wondering about the benefits of specialization, the phone starts to ring your way, we could say it that way, and it surprises people quite often, the degree to which the requests become more frequent, more common, and the like. So that's just a note for listeners. I want to go back to one thing that you said about choosing scaled agile over the other may begin to alienate some. This is also a little bit of a point in specialization because for some people, As they specialize, they're saying no to things or they're perhaps putting themselves in the market, but you begin to produce a not that orientation in some instances where, of course, people will say, well, who does he think he is? Anything you want to say about just the personal journey through the discomfort of alienating others? Or can you now see that perhaps specializing as a way to avoid (laughs) alienating others. Uh, Anything about either of those questions? Well, I definitely experienced some discomfort. I have enormous respect and admiration for Jeff Sutherland, who I've trained with a couple of times, and others who work closely with him. And I'd prefer, in some ways, not to feel alienated from those folks. Nevertheless, the value that I represent through going deep in Scaled Agile Framework outweighs the discomfort that I face around that. That's great. All right, so so here you are. You've been studying with us for almost a year. The biggest takeaways you would say in summary are what? 
there's something very, very special about being part of a, an ecology that intentionally creates a consequential environment, by which I mean I've always had a capacity to work hard. I enjoy diligent practice, uh, and I'm a lifelong learner. So some aspects of study with influence ecology were not foreign to me. But I think what I've had difficulty with often is maintaining balance in the achievement of my aims. In my willingness to work hard, I would suspend my exercise, for example. And I like to be active and, and stay fit, but I'd let my work and my career, I'd let those things displace other things. And it results in a lack of balance. So being part of an ecology in which you make commitments to, <laughs> to do certain things to achieve your aims and you report metrics against those, and there are people willing to hold you accountable for that, has been enormously valuable. Balancing hard work in the career context with regular exercise and articulating my aims across a broad set of conditions of life um, all of that's been enormously valuable. Uh, and I've got to say, attending the, uh, the conference in Cabo, the annual member conference, and meeting the people in the ecology face-to-face, that was, there was something very, very special about that. I do feel that I've gotten some personal value from finding a tribe that I want to be part of. Absolutely. Many people have said something quite similar about the experience and often is the case when someone comes to a conference for the first time they have already grown to respect the knowledge we teach the way that we teach it the consequential environment that we provide there are so many things that we do that you could find in all kinds of bits and pieces around the world and so we we simply create a structure that allows someone to develop specialized knowledge in a consequential environment where you show up, you do the work you know you need to do, and you do so to satisfy many, many different conditions of life. So you do have a balance across family and exercise and career and money and all those kinds of things. And then people go to a conference and meet everybody in person, and it blows them away every time. It just absolutely does, because there's nothing like a live environment to watch all of that that we teach happen in a live setting to observe what happens with other personalities. I love that I got to go sit on the beach and spend an hour with someone or you and I had dinner one night and got to sit across the table and just talk for a while and get to know one another. And we've become this massive global resource for one another in a variety of ways that I, I truly cherish. It's, it's been a wonderful experience. Well, on that point about being a resource for one another, the amount of help that Alex has been for me in the expansion of my identity within Western Digital is is remarkable. I brought him in to help me, and he's been enormously helpful to me. And he's coaching senior leadership, the most senior leadership in the company. And uh, we've been successful together, and I'm just very grateful. It was Alex who suggested that my study of influence ecology would help me satisfy certain specific aims that I have around travel and being able to uh, experience different parts of the world while, while doing interesting work. And the rate and extent of the progression that has occurred 
has been remarkable. Been fantastic. It's great. Confidence versus competence. You spoke a little bit about that. What's your soapbox about that? (laughs) I'm from the UK. You drew that out at the beginning of the interview. And in the UK, people tend to be a little bit more retiring, I suppose. In America and in Californian culture, uh, perhaps in particular, confidence is regarded as an asset. And I think it's important to have confidence. But I do see people popping up with confidence that is out of whack with their competence. And they simply are unaware of the degree of fitness required to to be valuable. I can think of examples where well-meaning folks step forward with an offer of help and no awareness of the degree of fitness required in order to truly be helpful. It's as if spending 10 minutes on Google is going to be enough to create this veneer of knowledge. Because the information is so readily available, it's almost as if anyone can know anything at any time. But the truth is, to embody knowledge requires a significant amount of diligent practice and study. Absolutely. Simon, it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you again. Thank you so very much for being on the Influence Ecology Podcast. Thank you, John. I'm really enjoying the journey. So thanks. You're welcome. In today's Guru Talk, we'll listen in on a Fundamentals of Transaction program where I teach how specialization helps build a surplus of wealth. The image that I refer to during this session can be found in the show notes. Here's the talk. The numbers of people that have gone on to specialize in things and earn so much more money, so much more money, and work so much less because they're specialized. They're not chasing things. They're not overwhelmed. They're quite focused and specialized in a particular solution for a particular customer. They don't take on customers that aren't their customer and so forth. So all kinds of examples. All right. um, What I'm going to do, I want to say a little bit about specialization itself, because for some people, they don't quite get by the thing about specialization or not quite clear. I'm going to just do one little example here. It's one of my favorites. This is actually a diagram or slide from an evolutionary biologist, Matt Ridley. Um, He teaches out of, I believe it is Cambridge. Um, And this is a slide from his keynote in London at a TED Talk. And it's from a talk called When Ideas Have Sex. I highly recommend that you go watch this TED Talk. It has a lot to do with what we teach and certainly a lot to do with specialization. This TED Talk is available on our site on the Distinctionary. You just look for his name, Matt Ridley. The purpose of this slide is to demonstrate two different tools. One tool on the left is a hand axe. The second tool on the right is a computer mouse. The one on the left was made by one person for his own purposes. The one on the right was made by perhaps millions of people. In fact, Matt Ridley argues that no one person knows how to make a computer mouse. He doesn't mean that no one person knows the architecture of a mouse. Certainly one person knows how this piece goes with that piece. But no one person knows how to make the petroleum that goes into the plastic that makes the mouse body or the little rubber wheel that is there or the computer components or the wires or all of the other bits that go into this mouse. 
In fact, all the things it takes to make this mouse reach into the lives of the people who are involved in the mining of the petroleum or the construction of the wires or whatever the case. There's a great example about making of a pencil, you know, a number two pencil, for example, and that millions of people are involved in this particular tool. The beauty of this is, is that one person is contributing to this computer mouse their particular specialization. Maybe it's the plastic. Maybe it's the coffee for the oil workers on the platforms for the, <laughs> the, the it, who knows what piece it is. But somebody's entire livelihood is made. Somebody's specializing in just one thing and able to transact to satisfy a whole host of conditions of life simply by specializing and then exchanging with a whole host of others. The thing on the left, the hand axe, made by one person for one person. This tool, the one on the left, was around for tens of thousands of years. The one on the right, it's probably a picture of an outdated mouse by now. It's probably no longer a relevant mouse, but we kind of recognize it as a mouse. So what does this have to do with exchange and specialization? Well, he goes on to explain about this particular theory. David Ricardo is from 1817, developed the classical theory of comparative advantage to explain why countries engage in international trade, even when one country's workers are more efficient at producing all the stuff. My country doesn't need other countries. It can produce everything. Just like you saying, well, I, I can do all the stuff myself. Yes, you could. Yeah, you could do all the stuff yourself. You could make all the stuff yourself. You could run that business by yourself. You could do all those things, but maybe there's something missing. Maybe there's something you don't quite understand. And here it is. He gives this example of two people, Adam and Oz. So here's the example. If Adam takes four hours to make a spear and three hours to make an axe, right? And Oz takes one hour to make a spear and two hours to make an axe. Now, both can make both. In fact, Oz is, looks like he's better at making both, and he might be better off to just do it all by himself. Well, you don't get the whole picture, because if they then do this, if Oz makes two spears, and then Adam makes two axes, and they trade, then they each save an hour of work. An hour of work to do what? Anything. Trade other goods, make other services go sit in the hammock, whatever the case may be. One of the things that Matt Ridley argues for is, is that saved time is wealth. Saved time is wealth. In fact, he calls independence the new poverty. In our next episode, we interview Jen Oliver, a senior director of service academic division at the University of Virginia. I'm viewed as valuable now, not just because I can do the work. I may not be the one that's doing the work. Early on in my career, I did everything for everyone except for myself. My special thanks to our guest, Simon Chesney. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with him and all the links to websites, books, or downloads mentioned in this podcast. Some episodes include a transcript and support material. The Influence Ecology Podcast is produced by Influence Ecology, LLC in Ventura, California. This episode was produced by me, John Patterson, and Jason Kelly. This program is made possible through the assistance of the Influence Ecology faculty 
mentors, and students around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study in the philosophy of transactionalism and the fundamentals of transactional competence. This episode includes contributions by Carol Gregory and Tyson Crandall. For this episode, the sound design and editing are by Jason Kelly. The podcast theme is by Chris Standring, entitled Fast Train to Everywhere. You can subscribe to the Influence Ecology podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at influenceecology.com. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes or your podcast app, and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know.